You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, Ancestral Health for a Modern World. All right, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, episode 12, Nutrigenetics and Mitochondria. We're going to continue on with this study of nutrigenetics and how it relates to our mitochondria, not only through the DNA, but through environment and through the food that we're eating on a daily basis. Okay, so mitochondria. I'm sure you all have heard of mitochondria, but let's start out just by defining it and I will kind of explain it in easy to digest terms. So the mitochondria are inside every single cell. You have multiple copies of them and think of them like the power plant of the cell. They are what drive the cell. Um, They're what give you cellular energy. So they're the, the powerhouses that essentially convert nutrition and metabolism to energy. And if you have listened to previous episodes, you'll have heard me talk about mitochondria a fair bit. Remember that it is only the maternal DNA that passes down mitochondria to the offspring. So the energy you get to power your cells and basically all the functions that happen on a cellular level gets passed down from your mom. And these mitochondria contain their own DNA, meaning that they have separate DNA and they have all the mechanisms to replicate themselves. So they divide with their own DNA and kind of own mechanisms inside the mitochondria. So they're separate from your kind of DNA blueprint that gets established. And unlike DNA, with regards to epigenetics, Mitochondria don't have those histone proteins, so the epigenetic tags that stick to the histone proteins like they do in DNA, that doesn't happen in mitochondria. What happens with epigenetics in mitochondria is that you get a lot of different enzyme reactions and proteins that interact with the mitochondrial DNA to change the function. Um, and most of that function and change in function is driven from different enzymes and different proteins that are within the mitochondria itself. It's also interesting because you can have different types of mitochondrial DNA in the same cell. So you have multiple little packets of mitochondria that sit inside a single cell. There's sometimes thousands of them, and a lot of them will contain certain mutations. You have what's called a wild type of mitochondria, which is kind of an unmutated form, but you also have slight mutation forms that habit the same cell, rather. And so when talking about epigenetics, it gets very complicated, and this is a very new field of study. It's very much in its infancy. And what they've really found with mitochondria is that it communicates with the nucleus of your cell. They kind of talk back and forth to maintain regulation and homeostasis with cell division and functions in your body, which they didn't really know. They knew that mitochondria was had separate DNA, had its own kind of type of DNA, but they didn't realize that it communicated with your epigenome and genetics inside the cell. And so when it does that, 
it uses enzymes and kind of different signaling proteins to do that. And so what they found is they found that there's methyl groups inside the mitochondria. They're not quite sure what's affecting what. It's a little bit like a chicken and egg. They don't know if your cellular environment is kind of driving a mitochondrial methylation change or if the mitochondria are driving a methylation change. But in either case, there is methylation that occurs within the mitochondria, just like the DNA, but it instead of affecting the histone proteins and that uncoupling effect that it has on your DNA, in the mitochondria it affects the enzymes and the proteins. And so you can see how this gets very, very complicated when you're trying to test for different epigenetic traits and factors and how that functions. Because if you have mul multiple different sets of DNA within a single cell and a bunch of different mitochondrial DNA, those processes get extremely complicated, especially when they're all kind of communicating with each other and you kind of have to try to sort that out. And to be honest with you, there isn't very good research on this yet. Maybe one day there will be, but as of right now, there's a lot of questions still to be answered. And remember that the mitochondria come from viruses. That was the original form. They're this double-membraned kind of virus that controls our energy of the cells and of our body. And without them, we wouldn't really survive. And so the fact that we can have multiple sets of different DNA within them, similar to a virus, makes things exponentially complicated. That double DNA, it has a technical term of heteroplasmy. Um, so if you ever come across that term for whatever reason, if you're looking at this stuff a little more closely, um, that's what it is. It's just two sets of different DNA within the same cell. And really, you only see that in our bodies in the mitochondria. So they're very, very unique. And one way they look at mitochondria is they look at it usually with diseases. So when there's several different categories of disease that change the mitochondria. Cardiovascular disease is one where you get changes within the mitochondria. And again, like they don't know whether it has to do with mitochondria changing first and that causing some imbalance and leading to disease or whether the conditions of the disease lead to mitochondria dysfunction. But you see it in things like that. Neurological diseases or disorders, you see a lot of mitochondria changes in the body as well. Things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, there's a, a measurable shift in the mitochondria that occur. And so again, there's a it's still kind of debated pretty intensely whether it's the disease causing this mitochondrial change or the mitochondrial change causing an imbalance that causes the disease. And so the practical takeaway from mitochondria is the fact that they do change and they relate to in an internal environment in your body and an external environment outside the body. And they're in communication with your DNA and with the cells. So the fact that, again, this is a very flexible organelle within the cell and 
those are the ones that produce the energy to carry out every function in the body, it becomes very important that they remain in balance and healthy. Okay, so enough about the nitty-gritty function of mitochondria. I really want to focus in on this episode about what affects the mitochondria through your diet and through environment, because that's ultimately what really matters. You need to know kind of what good, healthy mitochondria look like, and then what ill health for mitochondria looks like, because then you can differentiate between what's going on in a genetic and cellular level. Okay, so let's talk about having bad mitochondrial function and what that would do physiologically to your body. We all know what it feels like to have really low energy stores. Whether we've worked out too hard or we've been sick or completely stressed out, that really drained feeling is the feeling of being really low on energy. And that will translate to cellular energy, which is your mitochondria. Mitochondria stores your ATP, and ATP is what your body uses for energy or cellular, what's called cellular respiration. And that goes through the Krebs cycle and all that that we don't need to get into. But it's stored as this ATP molecule, this adenosine triphosphate molecule. And so if you don't have enough of that, if your mitochondria are, have dysfunction or they're weak, then things like digestion and nutrient breakdown of food and the immune system, all of that starts to get bogged down because the cells are at a deficit. They're trying to pump out enough energy, but their functionality just isn't there because the mitochondria just can't keep up with the demand. And you could see how that really would start to pile up year after year if that becomes a chronic issue, right? And then things start to really, really snowball you get this huge, huge influx of just things that start really taking a big hit and a really quick nosedive to ill health and chronic disease. And so when researchers test the mitochondria response, usually they do it within stem cells, but when they test it in disease states, that's what they see. They see this shift in the mitochondria because there's dysfunction. And so when you're dealing with immune system issues or dealing with some type of neurodegenerative type of disease or condition, then the mitochondria shift. They adapt to that internal environment. And that's a really important point to keep in mind is that these things will adapt to their environment. Just like any other cell adapts to its environment, so do the mitochondria, and so does that DNA, and so does that epigenetic factors of that mitochondrial DNA. And remember, it communicates with your DNA. So there's this communication, this constant communication where all of this is a complete system. Does that make sense? All of it is talking and dancing and communicating with each other in this really overarching capacity that gets really, really complicated very quickly because there's so much going on. And that's why we don't know much about this yet, and possibly ever. 
it's really hard to get a good look at the mitochondria, and there isn't really that effective of tests that test mitochondria when you're alive because there's so much going on at once. It's hard to kind of parse through all of that information. So typically when they're looking at the response of mitochondria, they're looking at enzyme and protein response. And that really has to do primarily with what's going on internally in your body, meaning nutrient-wise and detoxification-wise, and then also what's going on externally, so the external stress that you're taking in, whether that's physical or mental or chemical, all of that affects the mitochondria and the energy output that the cells can do. And this detoxification piece I want to spend some time on because that is another really important thing to keep in mind. The detoxification pathway of a cell is called the redox pathway. And cellular redox is basically just how your cell eliminates all the stuff it doesn't need. It kind of eliminates all the byproducts after it does its thing, right? You want to get rid of all that. Just like after eating, after all your digestion, you want to get rid of all your shit. Because if you don't, then your body doesn't function very well and you're going to feel like shit, right? You're literally going to be full of shit. Uh, and so the cells do the same thing, just on a microscopic level. So if you're not detoxing properly, if those detox pathways are plugged up, then the cells are going to have a hard time dividing and producing energy because they're backed up, right? And so that's usually when sickness and immune system gets involved because things start to get a bit toxic in a cellular environment. And then the cells don't divide in that environment because you don't want to be dividing damaged or damaged cells that are in a kind of a toxic or backed up environment. And all of that plays very closely into methylation and the methyl groups that your body is regulating. And remember, that also plays in with mitochondria because there's mitochondrial methylation, just like there's DNA or epigenetic methylation. So kind of linking all that together that we've talked about through this entire nutrigenomic study that we've been going through, methylation becomes kind of the root of regulating that process. And with mitochondria, it's extremely important because they are producing the energy for that whole process. Does that make sense? They're driving the energy behind all of that. They're driving the energy behind the methylation and using methylation themselves to regulate amino acid and protein function, which ultimately regulates every process in your body, really if you get down to it. So this idea of mitochondrial dysfunction, it would be like having a really bad running engine in your car, right? Say you blew a head gasket or you have a spark plug issue where you're getting a misfire in your engine and it's running super rough. It wouldn't matter if you put premium gas in and gave your car the best diet possible. If you have engine failure, then things aren't going to operate well and things aren't going to run well and it's going to wear out things very quickly. It's the same thing with your mitochondria. If, you, if that power plant, if those engines are misfiring, if they have dysfunction, 
then it doesn't matter how good your nutrition is. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter how good your nutrition is. Because until you clear up that mitochondria and those redox pathways, the cells aren't going to have the energy they need to even utilize that proper nutrition because they don't have enough energy to even break down the food into proper nutrition and utilize it in an efficient way. I hope that makes sense because that is probably the biggest take-home message of this entire nutrigenomic study that we've been going through. Okay, so how do you get to bad mitochondria function? You get to bad mitochondria function just like you get to any other illness in your body. If your immune system's weak, then you'll have limited mitochondria function. If you have obesity or diabetes or cardiovascular disease or an autoimmune condition or a hormonal issue or even musculature or skeletal issues, you'll have mitochondrial dysfunction. Have you ever broken a bone and you just have zero energy? You sleep a ton. That's because your body is remodeling those bones. You're getting osteoblast cells in there that remodel the bone. And that takes ATP. That takes a ton of energy for your body to utilize. And you don't have enough energy for functioning. So a healing process, if that doesn't turn off and that becomes a chronic issue, then you start to wear down cellular energy throughout the rest of your body because you only have a limited amount of energy. You can optimize that energy and you can create a little bit more, but you can only get so much at one time because there's only so much capacity. Right? There's only so much output those engines can be doing. Just like you have a limited output on your car engine, right? You can supercharge engines, right? You can supercharge your mitochondria, which we're going to get into, to get more, better, efficient output. But it's a limiting factor, and it always will be. Okay, so say your mom is obese. She has diabetes. She has to walk with a walker because she has neuromyopathy in the feet. And she has a kid, right? You have a little brother or a little sister. That kid is going to get all of her mitochondria and all of her mitochondria dysfunction, right? So when looking at mitochondria, look at your parents and grandparents. Were they healthy? Were they active? Did they challenge their body and challenge their DNA? Or were they very sedentary and complacent and always looking to be comfortable? Because if it was the latter, then you're probably going to get an onslaught of mitochondrial dysfunction that will absolutely factor into your overall health. So yeah, blame dear old mom for your mitochondrial dysfunction. Thanks a lot, mom. <laughs> um, so you can definitely change it, though. That's the cool thing about it, right? Just like you can change your epigenetics, you can change the epigenetics and change the actual direct mitochondria. So let's transition into how to actually change the mitochondrial dysfunction that you're dealing with. One of the easiest ways is to get your body out into extreme environments. Cold immersion is a fantastic way to enhance your mitochondrial function, and it actually increases the individual amount of a mitochondria in the cell, so it multiplies them. 
if you get your body into cold water especially. There's been research done with also cryotherapy and the enhancement of mitochondria. Not only the function, but again the number of mitochondria that get put into the cells because your body has to multiply them for different conversions that getting into cold can do. Your body becomes adaptable to it. And this idea of being adapted to the cold is extremely important because it's one we're very unfamiliar with in today's day and age because we have a thermostat set at, what, 70 degrees all the time. Being able to handle cold has a dramatic effect overall body as well. It converts your adipose tissue, your metabolic fat, to brown fat, which is easier to, for your body to burn off. It uses Your body uses brown fat as fuel for a metabolism, so you get a better fat conversion when you get your body into cold. You also limit the amount of inflammation that goes in your body. So it's a great way to kind of stack multiple processes at the same time. Another great thing to do is just to get outside and get sunlight especially at sunrise and sunset. If you can sun gaze at sunrise and sunset, that infrared light enters your eyes and it gets through the photoreceptors in your skin and it gets into the cells. And that has a profound effect on mitochondria. If you're not getting enough infrared light, then those redox pathways we talked about in the cell, they don't redox well. I mean, they don't clear well. That pathway gets plugged up because UV light kills bacteria and viruses. That's why they put water through UV light to filter it. If your body is getting UV light, it's killing viruses and bacteria. It will detox. If you're not, then that stuff stays proliferating in the body, which in return will cause more and more chronic dysfunction over time, which hinder the function of the mitochondria. You see how this works? It's just a big vicious cycle. So the minute you step out of properly functioning environments, it's going to just compound on the dysfunction on, on a cellular level of the mitochondria. There's a fancy scientific term called photobiomodulation for getting infrared light in your body. If you don't have time to get up with the sun and get outside, or if you don't have good access to a sunset or something like that, then there are tools you can use. Um, there's infrared light panels, infrared saunas do the same thing, but getting a specific wavelength of light at 660 nanometers does what's called photobiomodulation in your body. It regulates the ATP. It regulates the mitochondria. It feeds the mitochondria and starts to repair the mitochondria. You have enhanced metabolic changes, meaning it starts to reduce the amount of fat and adipose tissue. It starts to increase cellular energy in your body. And when that happens, if you're struggling with weight, those last 10 or 20 pounds that you just can't seem to burn, you've dialed in your nutrition, you're working out every day, but you still just can't get rid of that last 10 or 20 pounds, it's because you have mitochondrial dysfunction. You don't have enough cellular energy to burn off the rest of that fat. And if you get your body in a specific wavelength of light, specifically 640 to 660 nanometers wavelength of light, it will enhance the mitochondria so you can finish getting off of the rest of that weight. It also helps cell growth. So it helps cells, again, divide and 
divide properly and healthy. It also decreases cytokine inflammation. So just chronic widespread inflammation, it will decrease all of that. It also is involved in what's called signal transduction. So it provides a signaling response for other cells to pro proliferate and to divide in a healthy manner and in a regulated manner. So the fact that we have disconnected ourselves from the light cycles in the day and we've disrupted our circadian rhythms within a day, we're not waking up with the sunrise, we're not going to bed with sunsets, and we're not sitting in front of a fire at night. We've swapped out the fire for a TV. We've swapped our infrared light for blue light. Remember way back to episode one when I talked about fire and infrared light? Infrared light increases melatonin, whereas blue light increases the stress hormone cortisol. And remember, you cannot have proper melatonin function with cortisol elevated in your body. So if you're having trouble sleeping and you're only sleeping, let's say, I don't know, four hours a night or something like that, or you have a lot of disrupted sleep, there's a good chance you have mitochondrial dysfunction. There's a good chance that your circadian rhythms are pretty out of whack. So this may sound kind of like a trivial thing, like, oh yeah, I get infrared light. But honestly, it is involved in so many different processes in the body. It's extremely important. Think of light as a nutrient, just like you think of food as different nutrients. Think of light as a nutrient, because if you do that, hopefully you're going to value it a little bit more. Hopefully you'll get into a good rhythm, whether it's going to bed without a bunch of blue light right before bed, or you're using some type of biohacking tool like blue blockers or something like that to block the blue light at night if you're watching TV. It's extremely important that you are connected in with the light cycles within a 24-hour period. Here's a tip. If you want really good sleep, here's what I do. I have certain lights in my house that I turn on at night, and I do that because I have Edison bulbs in there. I have incandescent light bulbs that give off an amber light, so no blue light. LEDs are terrible because they give off a blue spectrum light, and the flicker rate messes with hormone production in your brain, which isn't great. Uh, so I have certain lights that I'll turn on. Better yet, I will turn off the lights and I will just stare at candles because that starts to increase the melatonin and prepare you for sleep. If I really want to sleep well, then I will drink some chamomile tea. And if you do that, 45 minutes or so before bed, I guarantee you're going to sleep better and you're going to sleep longer and fall into a deeper sleep. The more you practice that, the better it gets. So if you're a person listening and you have trouble sleeping, just try that for a couple of weeks. I would be really surprised if it didn't help you sleep. I mean, we evolved around fires. Doesn't it make sense that it got infused into our biology? Doesn't it make sense that it literally became a part of our biological process before we went to bed. Don't miss that step. It's a very important step to look at flame before you sleep. 
And if you're living in the suburbs or the city and you have street lights or some type of outside light that's coming in your window when you're sleeping, that's also going to disrupt your sleep because your skin has photoreceptors and your skin takes in that light. Even if your eyes are closed, your skin will soak up that blue light and it will decrease melatonin. So the best thing for that is to use blackout curtains. The one thing that that does is it can, you may kind of oversleep and you may not wake up with the sun, um, but you could always set an alarm to wake up right before the sun and then get out and get some sun exposure. So it makes it hard if you're, if you have some light pollution coming in your bedroom, but I mean, there's, there's ways and little hacks that you can get around it. And if you think about all the electronics, a lot of those have blue lights or green lights and all of that affects melatonin and cortisol. And so cover up all that stuff. Even smoke alarm lights will disrupt things if that's a green light on it or something like that. If you start looking around your bedroom, you'll probably realize that there's blue lights on all sorts of electronics. Um, so if you can cover that up with some type of tape, usually black electrical tape works well or hockey tape, something like that, um, you can cover that stuff up and you can block that harmful blue light. Now, blue light in the day, that's a different story because depending on the time of the day, if it's mid-afternoon, you're going to have a lot of blue light. You want to be up. You want your cortisol to be up a little bit, but when you're trying to sleep, you don't want that at all. You naturally would never have that until the incandescent light bulb and especially that blue spectrum of light that we're now using. Okay, so there's your crash course in photobiomodulation and red light. Exercise is another great way to increase and enhance the mitochondria in the cells. The more muscle tone you put on, the more fat you're going to burn. Remember that muscle burns 10 times more calories than fat. So the more muscle mass you have, the more calories you're going to burn at rest. So keeping proper muscle tone in your body is crucially important for mitochondrial health because it keeps things firing. It keeps that those engines turning at a sustainable rate, right? You're not getting bogged down, right? If you've ever driven a manual transmission and you start bogging down the gears, then the engine dies. Same thing in mitochondria. I hope you like these car analogies. Uh, so exercise is another easy way to enhance the mitochondria. Throw in some weight training, throw in some natural movement outside on the landscape, whether it's hiking or foraging or whatever, right? Because then you start to stack disciplines. You get out in the sun, right? You get movement, you get some infrared light and UV light, and your body starts to integrate all of that information and it starts regulating things. That's why it feels so good to work outside if you don't work outside that often. You're getting your hands, say you like to garden, right? And But you spend most of your time indoors at a computer, right? You get your hands in dirt in the springtime and it feels good. It feeds the body all the way down to the cells. It really does. And it sounds a little cliche, but it's the truth. Because remember, the mitochondria is flexible. It adapts to the external environment outside and your internal environment. It moves, it shifts, it dances, 
with the rest of the systems of your body. If you look at hunter-gatherers, they had some of the most robust mitochondrial function ever. They did studies where they took snippets of mitochondria of hunter-gatherer populations versus Neolithic farming populations, and the mitochondria were vastly different. They were way more robust in hunter-gatherers. They not only had better nutrition, but they were interacting in a more sustainable way to the external environment, which set their bodies up. Their bodies were in tune with the natural environment in a way that we have largely forgotten. And so the steps that you can take to, the well, baby steps you can take to get back there, it's going to be that much better for your body. It's going to be way better for your body. Okay, so earlier I alluded to nutrition and mitochondria health. I said that if you have really bad mitochondrial dysfunction, that nutrition has a hard time helping that out, which is true. But it doesn't mean you should just kind of forget nutrition because if you start enhancing the mitochondria through exercise, through photobiomodulation, through getting out and getting your body into some extreme heat or extreme cold, then that mitochondria starts to ramp up. And then you need higher nutrients and better nutrition to keep that supplied, right? So if you have a super high-tuned engine, you're going to need really good fuel. Racing engines need high-octane fuel to run properly. If you put crappy fuel in a racing engine, then it won't run. It won't operate well. Same thing with really robust, good mitochondria. You need good nutrition to keep that revved up. Those go hand in hand. They always will. And as we've seen through nutrigenetics, depending on your biology and your mitochondria health, what you're taking in is going to assimilate differently in your body. Your body is going to use those nutrients differently depending on who you are and how your genetics are performing. So the more optimum you can get, the better things are going to be. Not just for you, but for the future family line. Which again, that's why it's so important to be able to pass some of this basic concepts and basic elemental things down. We've gotten separated from these basic things that feed and restore our biology. And the further we get away from them, the worse our bodies are going to start to break down. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but definitely through generations. It's going to compile. It's going to stack. So the more you can stack good behaviors, the more it's going to set up the people after you. Does all this make sense? It really does depend on just the daily things you're doing that enhances your biology. Keep an 80-20 rule. If 80% of the time you're getting outside, breathing fresh air, getting infrared light, moving your body, then you're going to establish good baseline health. You can screw off the rest of the 20%. You can give yourself a little bit of leeway because you shouldn't get too rigid. No one's perfect, and you don't have to be perfect. No one expects you to be perfect. But if you can hold a good baseline, you're going to build in resilience for your body. You're going to build in cellular and genetic resilience, which is very, very different than just balancing calories with nutrition. This is real nutrition. This is nutrition that builds in biological resilience. This is the nutrition you need moving forward. It's the nutrition we all need moving forward. It's the nutrition I need moving forward. And I'm in the same boat with 
every single listener. I'm not perfect at this, and I will never claim to be perfect. I have a desire to get better, and I have a desire to connect back in with the natural environment, but I am living the same lifestyle as everybody else. I do my best to incorporate the things that I'm talking about, but I'm not perfect. So take baby steps. Take the small strides to incorporate some of this stuff. We've become very, very comfortable in this built environment, and it's starting to show in our mitochondria health, in our epigenetic health, and through generations. So as a wrap-up, get your body into some extreme environments. Get your body into extreme heat to build heat shock proteins and to build mitochondria health. Get your body into extreme cold for cold thermogenesis and mitochondria regulation. Better yet, toggle back and forth if you have the ability to do that because that's a great way to stack those disciplines. Get good exercise. Get good sunlight to increase that photobiomodulation in your body. These little things are great. They start to build health in your body. It's the little stuff that matters when it comes to nutrition and health. You know, I mean, there's always going to be drugs that you can take that kind of carpet bomb the body and have drastic effect on them. But most drugs you have to continually take to keep your body in that type of homeostatic balance. You know, medications, most medications you're on for life if you're dealing with chronic issues like this, which is a very, very different approach. It's one of that you can only really have in a built environment like this because you're dependent on other people making those medicines. You're dependent on pharmaceutical influence. This is an approach where you start to come out of that a little bit. You start to become a little more free and have a little more sovereignty for your health. It's very, very different. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes courage. But everybody can do it. Your ancestors did it. You can do it too. Your biology is no different from theirs. It is no different. And if you put yourself in a similar environment, you're going to have similar health. But it's a conscious decision you're going to have to make. We're not living in a natural environment as much anymore unless we consciously put ourselves in a natural environment and be active participants in a natural environment. There's a difference between just putting on your backpack and going for a hike and being an actual active participant on your landscape. That's why hunting, fishing, and foraging starts to become such a valuable practice when you want to start stacking all these types of disciplines because you pay attention to the small things. You get off trail, you move through different environments and terrains, and you interact with biology. You don't do that eating freeze-dried food in a backpack going on a 15-mile track. That's better than sitting on the couch. It's still a passive thing rather than being an active participant. I mean, all of that is the main reason I enjoy getting food off of a landscape. It gets me outside. I get good sun exposure. I get good movement and I get good nutrition. So all of those things are in cadence with this view that I've been talking about, with a, a biological view, a biologically sustainable view. But it all takes time. It all takes patience. It all takes work. And you kind of have to decide what your values are going to be. Are you going to put value in developing good habits for your 
own health? Or are you going to put more value in technologies and letting somebody else do the work by kind of outsourcing the work? And you can't do it all, and you have to pick and choose. I'm not saying one is necessarily right or one is necessarily wrong, but it's, it becomes a value type of decision. But what I can confirm and what I can tell you is that our food system and ultra-processed food is one of the main contributors to our ill health. And so stepping outside of that in any direction you want to go is going to be better than staying in it. Okay, so thank you so much for listening. I hope that you can take something away on these concepts of mitochondria health and nutrigenetics. And I will be talking to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail. And you can connect with other listeners. 